Good morning, church. I've been given the opportunity to do two things this morning that I really like. First, I get to give glory to God for what he's been doing on the college campuses around us. And second, I get to preach the word of God. So we have a tradition with our college students in InterVarsity that when you give a testimony, you say, my name is, and I'd like to give glory to God, to which everyone else responds with amen. So let's try that together. My name is Ben, and I want to give glory to God. Amen. So don't shout them out, but when you think of the, sh- of the secular university, what are the, what are the things that you think about? Don't say anything. Maybe you think of Christian films that show the scary and mean atheist professor, or of the fear of sending your child away to a college not knowing how it might affect their faith. When I think of the secular university, I think of God moving powerfully. So this slide shows about 75 students from Cal State Fullerton and Fullerton College who came to our fall conference in October at Catalina Island. And not only are these students hungry to know about Jesus, to learn about God, but no less than 12 of them made decisions to follow Jesus at this conference. So with the partnership of this church, the Southwest Region of Friends, and many of the families here in Canyon Hills, we've seen our student leadership team grow from 11 to 22. And so these are the 17 to 24-ish year old leaders that are leading Bible studies at Cal State Fullerton and Fullerton College. Um, And so far, we've seen 42 students decide to follow Jesus this academic year on our campuses. So praise God for that. Uh, And one story I want to share is something that God definitely arranged. So uh, a student leader named Andrea had been faithfully building relationships with international students at Cal State Fullerton. She's the one on the left, and uh, decided that she didn't want to do it alone, and so she invited her friend Nancy, who wasn't a Christian at the time, to come and help because she just wanted a friend nearby. And so she built relationships with international students, uh, started leading Bible studies for them and teaching them about uh, Jesus, about God. And in the midst of that, they went to a conference together recently where Andrea had the joy of not only seeing two of her international students, one from Germany and one from China, uh, stand to say yes to Jesus, but in between the two of them was her best friend, Nancy, who stood to say yes to Jesus. Uh, They are now both on our leadership team together, now Nancy as a Christian, um, and they are continuing the work of meeting. uh, We have new international students that come from many different countries uh, every semester. Um, Some of the countries that Christian missionaries spend years learning uh, language, and it's difficult to get into in the first place, and yet they send their students to our college campuses. And so uh, Andrea and Nancy are um, leading a Friday night Bible study currently uh, for those students. So I wish I had more time to share these stories, uh, because these 18 to 24-ish year old college students are hungry to learn about Jesus, and I have the joy of seeing their lives transformed on our campuses in our own backyard. And I want to thank you guys uh, for the prayer and for the support, uh, because it is an odd reality living as a missionary in my own hometown. And you guys have been very kind, uh, asking me how things have been going and praying for the ministry, and I really appreciate that. So as we transition to our sermon this morning, I want to personally invite you to consider coming to join us in prayer. Every month we hold a prayer walk for revival with our students, and this month uh, is this coming Friday, the 23rd. We'll be at Fullerton Junior College, the one in, in downtown Fullerton. There's plenty of free parking. It's easy to get to. We'll be meeting in the quad at 7 p.m. It only lasts about an hour, hour and 15 minutes. Um, And you are all invited to come and pray with us this Friday at 7 at Fullerton Junior College uh, to pray for revival on that campus.
and it'll be led by some of our uh, FC students. So this morning, I have the joy of beginning the series on David. So our text this morning begins in 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's going to be our key text. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's near the front of the Bible. Uh, But at the time we pick up the text, a few major things are happening to God's people, the Israelites. So for generations upon generations, the people of God were peculiar because they were a theocracy, basically a nation of laws uh, that were given to them by God that were administered by these judges and prophets. These included laws of cleanliness, like what to do with your hair or what clothes to wear, and moral laws like to not kill or commit adultery. They were to be different, set apart from the the nations around them, and all of the glory and favor that they got as the nation of Israel was to point to their God and cause the surrounding nations to ask, who is this God that protects and causes this nation to thrive even without a king? And this is the central theme of God in the scriptures, that he loves to move in surprising people and in surprising ways to ensure that he receives the glory. He doesn't want us to place our trust in some human king or leader, but to place our trust in him, our living God, the Lord of heaven and earth. So Samuel, the judge that our book is named after, administered justice and was a prophet who spoke the word of the Lord to Israel. And he, Samuel, was honorable and would listen to the voice of God and share that with the people. In his old age, Samuel left that job to his sons. And it turns out his sons were not quite as honorable as Samuel was, because they perverted justice, took bribes, and abused power for their own gain. So Israel gets fed up and goes to Samuel in his old age and asks him if they can appoint a king of Israel for the first time ever. And let's look at our text. This is in chapter 8. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to the people, what they're telling you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So Samuel warns all of Israel just how much a king is going to demand of them because this king won't be as generous as their previous king, God. But they insist, no, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. And remember, God set up Israel in this odd way so that his people and the nations around him would always turn to him and give him glory because he is their God, and he's good and worthy to be praised. But the Israelites wanted to be like the other nations, and so they got their king. The first king of Israel's credentials are a little bit odd. In chapter 9, we find that Saul was a handsome young man, and not just handsome, but there was no man in Israel more handsome than he, and that he was the tallest, head and shoulders above any of the other guys. So Israel gets their king, a tall and handsome man who becomes famous for two things his incredible good looks, and disobeying God. 
So in chapters 13 through 15, we see Saul disobeying God multiple times and Samuel multiple times showing him the error of those ways and saying that your kingdom will not last because of what you've done. So at this moment, you may be wondering, we're starting a series on David. What does this have to do with David? And I want to say it has everything to do with David. David enters the scene in chapter 16 as a young boy who is short in stature and is unassuming tending some sheep. When Samuel is sent by God to David's dad's house, Jesse, because God tells Samuel the next king will be anointed from that family, he goes and and lines up the brothers, and he sees some older, taller, wiser, warrior-type men, and he says, surely one of these brothers is going to be the next king of Israel. And this is what God says to Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so in the story, this young shepherd boy, David, is anointed as Israel's second king, even though Saul is still technically serving as king at this time. And that takes us to our main text this morning. And before we read it together, I do want to warn you, if you've grown up in a church, you grew up in Sunday school, this may be a passage that you're familiar with. And that comes at a risk to all of us because we might feel like, oh, I've got this one. I've got this one down. But I do want to say it may have been given to us in in our youth, but we don't want to have a youth interpretation of the text. And so I think God has something new for us this morning. So we're going to start in 1 Samuel 17. Let's look at the scripture. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled. They pitched camp. I didn't want to mess with the names. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. And so the armies of Israel are up here on one hill. Down the slope is this valley and then up the slope again are the armies of the Philistines. Do you see the picture? They're both up high and there's the valley in between. And so a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze, bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like the weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of them. Okay, so Goliath is standing over nine feet tall. And hearing this description, I would imagine none of us would really want to go fight this guy. He is massively large. He has a long iron-pointed spear, bronze armor, and even his own shield bearer in front of him. And so you can imagine someone standing that tall with a shield bearer ahead of him can just lean over and get you with his spear. You don't want to fight this guy. So Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. The text later tells us that he does this Every day for 40 days, morning and night, Goliath taunts the servants of Saul to come try him, and whichever army loses will become subject to the victor. So imagine this, 40 long days over a month's time, 
Twice a day, Goliath goes down the slope into the valley and is shouting up at the armies of Israel. And where are the, uh, the eyes of the army of Israel? They're on Saul. He's their king. And not just that, we learn that he's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And so he probably should be the one that's going to go fight Goliath. And the imagery here is rich, and I think that God gave it to us on purpose. Even the most handsome, tallest man in Israel is no match for the mighty Goliath. Saul was the leader of the army, and it was likely that Goliath may have considered that Saul would be the one to come down and maybe be the one expected to challenge him because the Israelites had said previously, we want someone to lead us into battle. But Saul instead is dismayed and terrified. And this isn't the first time we see Saul like this. In chapter 13, he's again cowering and afraid of an opposing army, and he breaks a major commandment of God in the process. And so here again in chapter 17, he's afraid. And because no Israelite will fight Goliath, the armies are in a stalemate for over 40 days. Enter the shepherd boy David. He's already been appointed the next king by Samuel, but Saul's not entirely keen to the whole plan. Let's look at the text. Now Jesse... David's dad said to his son David, take this epath of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander for their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So David is essentially the Uber Eats or the DoorDash of the armies of Israel. His dad, Jesse, sends him with some grain and some bread, and like any good father, like any good parent, prepares a nice tray of cheese to give to his commander. And Jesse wants to know how his kiddos are doing on the battlefield. Remember the tall, handsome, warrior-type ones that weren't chosen to be king. And like any younger brother, if you've ever had one, when he sees commotion around his older brothers and an opportunity to stick his nose in it, he hurries over to see what's happening, and it's one of those times that Goliath has come down and is taunting the Israelites. Let's look at the text. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, before we get caught up on the one thing that may cause some of us to want to fight someone like Goliath, total tax exemption, let's take a look at David's response to Goliath's taunts. Thanks for laughing at my joke, by the way. I appreciate that. For 40 long days... Saul and the armies of Israel cowered and were terrified by Goliath morning and night. Teenage shepherd boy David hears one taunt, and I love his response. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, David sees something that no one else sees in this moment. Everyone has put their eyes and their trust in their king Saul, and Saul had long since decided that he hadn't put his trust in his living God, but David sees what's really going on. By calling him an uncircumcised Philistine, he's saying that Goliath isn't in the covenant of God and the promises of Yahweh, and, the, and he isn't in the lineage of Abraham from whom the salvation of the world was to come. So who is this Goliath to, to defy the armies of the living God? Everyone is so focused on their tall, beautiful, handsome, weak king, and no one realizes that God is taunting, or that Goliath is taunting God himself. 
So what does teenage shepherd boy David do? He goes to have a chat with Saul. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go out and fight him. In other words, don't be afraid. I've got this. So Saul responds, thank the God of heaven and earth for sending us such a skilled warrior for our greatest task yet. That's not what he says. He says, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But remember God's words to Samuel about David. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And David has a heart with a single devotion to God. And so this is how he responds to Saul. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will just be one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from this little hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You see, in the scriptures, when someone was unharmed in the presence of mighty beasts, it was a sign that God was with them. One of the most famous stories is Daniel in a lion's den. And Saul, to his credit, does the thing that no one expects. He actually says, yes, you can go and fight Goliath, knowing full well what the stakes are. Whoever loses will become servants of the other army. And so Saul says, well, now we need to prepare him for battle. And so he gets out his own tunic and puts it on David. He puts a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And then David fastens his sword over the tunic and he tries walking around because no one because he was not used to them. And David says, I cannot go in these because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. So friends, this story at this point is both silly and beautiful. Saul assumed that this little teenage shepherd boy, if he's going to battle on the behalf of all of Israel, he must put on the armor of a skilled warrior king. So they play dress up. Remember, Saul is the tallest man in Israel, and he gives David, this little boy, his tunic. He puts on a coat of armor and a helmet on him, and you can imagine David trying to fasten the sword and just clanking around the room with his oversized clothes and these oversized armor. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And sometimes for us, when we're gearing up to take a new risk with God, we can often feel like Saul, assuming that we need to look a certain way or mimic a certain leader who has gone before us. But there's a simplicity to David's response that I think we need to hear this morning. We can't go dressed like someone else. God will send us to be us. So let's finish the text. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. So Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, by the way, whom you have defied. 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. So can you imagine this scene? Goliath is offended that this little shepherd boy, without the proper armor, was chosen to fight him with some rocks and a sling. Goliath curses David in the name of his gods, and David's response shows where he has put his trust. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And the text goes on to say that exactly what David said would happen did happen because he chose to put his trust in the Lord. David struck down Goliath with one of his stones, and Goliath fell to the ground. David removed Goliath's sword and cut off his head. And it truly is a gory scene, but the imagery here is powerful. It was to show that there is a God in Israel. Before Israel demanded a king, Israel was supposed to be this peculiar theocracy who won battles where hundreds of Israelites killed and slaughtered tens and hundreds of thousands of another army, and it didn't add up. And people would have to ask, who is this God? David killing Goliath takes the mocking eyes of the Philistine army and of Goliath off of Saul and of the army and causes them to flee in fear of the God who could use a shepherd boy to strike down a nine-foot-tall Goliath. And furthermore, finally, the Israelites can once again put their trust in the right place, not in Saul or a king, but in God. This is our God. Praise be to God that he reveals his power and his glory using the young, the overlooked, the written off, the one that no one would ever assume that God would use. Jesus knew this, and one of my favorite moments in his entire ministry was after he had sent 70 random unnamed followers of his to go out into towns and twos ahead of him to, let, uh, to do mission work and to let people know that Jesus was coming. And Jesus' response is this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. So God is overjoyed and pleased to reveal his glory using his little kiddos. Are you feeling a little less than this morning? Do you feel like you haven't got your life figured out or you've realized that recently? Are you feeling overlooked? Have you fallen on hard times and you feel unlikely to be used by God in any way in this season? This is a word for you. If your trust is in our all-powerful God, you are not only usable by God, but you are the exact type of person that God loves to use to reveal his glory. Amen? Ruth, Moses, Rahab, the Samaritan woman at the well, Gideon, the tax collector, Paul, the persecutor of Christians. The Bible is a big book of unlikely characters who choose to put their trust in God and then get powerfully used by him, not because of how amazing they are, but be precisely because of how normal they are. God doesn't need some powerful, tall, beautiful king to carry out his plan among his people. He's in the business of using the oddball teenage shepherd boy so that he receives the glory. And David is one of those people in the scriptures. 
And I'm so glad that we're doing a sermon series on him, because unlike many of the names I just mentioned, we don't just learn about who David is, but we actually get to know him all the way through. He wrote much of the Psalms and winds up making one of the biggest mistakes in the entire Bible. And so we read his poetry. We learn about his life and his biggest failure. And if you want to learn more about what it means to follow God, if you want to learn more what it means to know God, come and be a part of this series. Come to every week and learn more about David. Because I think we're in for a treat. So I want to ask the question, what does this mean for us this morning? And there's two key things I want to invite you to take away from this message. First, God can use anyone for his glory. It doesn't matter how wealthy or broke you find yourself this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for decades or weeks. It doesn't matter if you, if you see yourself as someone that God can use in his kingdom or not. It doesn't matter if people see you as a powerful leader or have written you off. It doesn't matter if you have a powerful and important job or you earn an honest and simple living. In my work with college students, a big part of what I get to do is casting vision to them that they didn't wind up at their campus on accident, but it was actually God who placed them there on purpose and put them there in their majors on purpose. If a scared 18-year-old freshman can lead their friends to faith and plan a Bible study in the dorms, then it causes us to ask, who is our God? This isn't only a word for ourselves, but even for how we view the people around us. Many of you work and live in places of influence. Some of you hire employees and run businesses. Others of you serve in leadership roles in the church or in your vocation or in your home. Hire, lead, and serve knowing this. The Lord does not look at the same things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Ask God to help you look at the outer appearance, not at the outer appearance of those around you, and to look at them through his eyes and to ask God, Lord, what's really going on in this person's heart? So first, God can use anyone for his glory. And second, if our hope is in the Lord, we don't need to be afraid. David walked into a situation where an entire nation and king established by God had put their trust in this handsome, cowardly king. But David knew where to put his hope. One of the Psalms he later writes is Psalm 25, where he starts it this way. In you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. And the invitation to put our hope in God sounds fine and good until we stand face to face with a Goliath in our lives. Many of us here might be standing face to face with a Goliath in our lives, and you know what it is. A death in the family, financial turmoil, a job loss, a major illness, we know too well what it means to face a Goliath in our own lives. And it's at that moment where all the head knowledge of what we know about God that we know that we're supposed to put our trust in God is put to the test because of the lived experiences that we, fa- we find ourselves in right now. So many of you know Olivia and I, my wife, um, recently had our very first child, Anna. And uh, she just turned 10 months. And just so you know, Anna currently enjoys, where's my list, shrieking, farting, laughing at farting noises, and jumping in her jumper. So that's our world right now at home. But the journey of, our, of, of her birth was a moment in our lives where we had to choose to, to decide if we're going to put our trust in God, and that was put to the test. So I was on Catalina Island teaching a Bible study through the Gospel of Mark to Fullerton College students when I got a call that Olivia was being sent to the hospital. It was April 12th, and Anna was due on June 29th. 
So I packed up everything I had, and it was kind of like a movie where my stuff's in a bunch of different locations. I'm running around, getting the bags packed. We find out one of the staff there has a little boat, and he can take me to Avalon. On the boat ride over, we're both praying, asking God that a ticket is available on the last boat back from Catalina back to the mainland, and I made it. I got a ticket, got on the boat, and made it there. And then we spent the next four four days in the hospital with Olivia getting tons of tests, listening to the heartbeat of Anna, and giving her tons of medication and helping her try to keep the baby in as long as possible. So late on the night of Easter, Easter Sunday the 16th, four days later, Olivia took a turn for the worse in the matter of 10 minutes. And she was rushed into the OR for an emergency C-section. And I remember frantically putting on the hospital gear and then sitting in the waiting area, waiting for them to let me in for the operation to begin. And there I was, a professional Christian, a missionary, full of fear, afraid, not knowing how it was going to go. And so I didn't know what to do, so I picked out my phone and I pulled up the only thing I could think of at that moment, and that was Psalm 23, which beautifully was written by King David. And I started reading it again and again and again. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. And when I finally made it into the OR, Olivia was naturally a bit afraid, kind of like I was, and so we asked if I could read that psalm aloud before we started, and we did. So I had in that moment, I had to decide where I was going to put my trust. I was facing a Goliath in my life, and I knew that I had to turn to God, but I had to ask myself, Would I put my trust in him if it went well or even if it didn't go well? Could my cup still overflow? Would goodness and mercy still be with me? So Anna was born 11 weeks early. Anna and Olivia were healthy. But then we spent the next 57 agonizing days of our lives visiting the NICU, where it felt like every other day was either progress made or a major setback. And it was in those moments in my admittedly young life that I had to choose where to put my trust. Even when we realized that our insurance wasn't going to cover as much as we thought it was and we're down to our last penny. Even when uh, Anna would make a major uh, breakthrough and then fall back and be back on the ventilator for a few days. Friends, I think David was on to something. He says, in you, Lord my God, I put my trust. I trust in you. He's proclaiming to the world where he had placed his trust, and that was in his God. So I want to close our time together uh, by praying for some of us here in the room. First, there might be some of you who need help either seeing uh, the heart of people around you or you realize that you've been really uh, looking down on yourself or writing yourself off or someone has written you off and you want help learning to look at the heart like God does. And second, there might be some of us here that are facing Goliaths in our lives. Serious stuff. Stuff that we don't know if it's going to go well or not. And we're making that decision today. Am I going to put my trust in God in this? And so just go ahead and bow your, uh, bow your head and close your eyes for a moment, just to have some privacy. And if you're in either of those groups, would you just uh, raise your hand so that I can pray for you? You know who you are. I see you guys. Anyone else? 
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these children that you've brought here, that were made in your image, whom you love. And Lord, you know exactly why they're raising their hand. Uh, if there's something about looking at the heart or, or accepting the, the good heart that you have for them, Lord, I pray that you would help them draw near to you this morning. And for those of us who are facing a very real Goliath in our lives, and he looks way more than nine feet tall, and that spear looks sharp, Lord, I pray that you would teach us right now in the midst where we really need it to learn how to put our trust in you, to give you all of our trust, to trust that you can be good if it goes well or not well. But Lord, because I'm your kid, I want to ask for breakthrough and victory as well. Lord, bring breakthrough in these stories. We ask for a miracle in these stories. Teach us what it means right there in the hospital room, flipping through a phone, in the midst of the fear, what it means to put our trust in you. Lord, I pray that your presence, your spirit of peace would be on those who have raised their hands and that you would teach our congregation to learn what it means to walk alongside them and to pray for them and to carry that burden with them. So Lord, we thank you for being our good God and we pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.